This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. Uh, my name is Will. I'm a deacon here and also the youth and college pastor here, and it's good to see all of you. Um, maybe you read about this too, but this week I read about something called the metaverse. Have you guys heard of the metaverse? It's apparently this is what Facebook is going to be into next. This is like their next big project. And the metaverse is basically like the internet 2.0. So instead of, you know, like going on YouTube and watching somebody's life, you know, an ocean away and, and saying, oh, London seems neat, that you would actually be able to put on a headset and goggles and that you would be able to go to London and walk around and, and go on a vacation with other people there and walk around and explore the whole place and then take off your goggles and go eat a bowl of cereal, right? It's this, it's this kind of fusion of the physical world and the virtual world, and apparently this is the next big thing, and whether it's going to be great, I don't know. You know, sounds like maybe some trouble is ahead. But like a lot of technologies, it's being billed as a, what's called a, a disruptive innovation or a disruptive technology. And so that's a, a term that was coined like 25 years ago. And basically to describe new technologies that aren't just like a, a new gadget, not just like another thing to add on to the technologies that we already have, but a technology that totally changes the way we live. And, and totally flips entire industries on their head, putting people out of work and creating lots of new, brand new jobs that, that are seemingly like out of nothing. It didn't exist in, you know, before, didn't have, didn't have a market. And so you can think of like the car, right? That for 5,000 years, horses, horse-drawn carriages were the most efficient means of travel by land. And then the car is invented, and in just a few decades, 20 million horses in the United States are replaced by, by automobiles. And roads become changed so that now they're suited for automobiles. And people who used to, you know, be involved in taking care of horses and feeding horses are now out of jobs. But all these new jobs, mechanics and people who take care of cars and people who dig for oil to power these cars, it, changed an entire industry, and it changed the way we lived. It changed the way we, we understood, like, what it meant to live close to somebody, where before maybe living close means you live a couple miles away, because that's how long it takes, you know, it takes you about an hour to get there. Now, somebody could live close, but they could live a whole state away, because you can drive the same distance and what it used to take you to, to walk or to go by horse, that sort of thing. That's what a disruptive technology is. And I think that that analogy is actually helpful for us when we think about Christianity. Because for Paul and the other writers of the New Testament, Christianity is not simply a new religion, a new belief system, a new set of, of rituals and traditions, but Christianity is a disruptive religion. It fundamentally changes the way that we approach God. It's a completely different type of religious belief and practice. It's so new and so disruptive that even 2,000 years later, we're still trying to put the pieces together at just how different this is. And the difference was this, that if we're going to kind of continue with that business analogy, that in the ancient, in the ancient world, every religion... Is, is similar or the same in this regard, 
that they all offer the same thing. They all offer purity. They all offer a set of practices that enable you to approach God, that enable you to merit God's favor, that enable you to avoid the God's wrath by what you do. And that would have been true whether you were looking at the the Jews with their whole long set of laws that's contained in the Torah in our Bibles, or whether you were looking at the Romans scattered around in their different places, or the Babylonians or the Egyptians. All of these religions were interested in offering people a means for purity, things they could do to be acceptable to God. And then comes Jesus. And then comes Jesus in his death and his resurrection and his ascension. And this whole industry built around purity is disrupted because what Jesus offers is purity apart from what you do. What Jesus offers is a way to be acceptable to God apart from your own efforts, a way to be forgiven, made righteous before God apart from what you do. And so to go back to these rituals and traditions, trusting that they can give you all of those things, to go back to that would be like buying something that you already have. Only it'd be like buying an outdated version of that. You don't need those things anymore. You have the very thing you were seeking all along. And this is the reason that Paul is writing this letter. Because the Colossians have gotten confused. And because there are others that are teaching what what Paul calls this, this philosophy, this empty deceit. You know, he doesn't give a name to it. But it's basically this teaching that you need to add on to Jesus all of these rituals and traditions, this asceticism, this severity to the body. You have to do this stuff to be pure. And Paul is saying, no, that whole industry has been disrupted. That's not how Christianity works. That might be how the, the other religions of the world work, but not this one. What Jesus has done is completely new. And we need this instruction just as much as the Colossians needed this. Because we have a tendency to ground our own security and our own sense of forgiveness and our own sense of goodness in the things that we do and not what Jesus has done for us. And we need this reminder of the good news just as much as the Colossians did. And so I've got an outline for you there in your notes. And, uh, and like, like I said, Paul doesn't have a name for this. He just calls it a philosophy, chapter 2, verse 8. But in our passage, he begins to describe the teachings of this philosophy that's contrary to the gospel. So in verses 16 and 17, he says, Paul is saying, the gospel is not legalistic in the way that this philosophy is. It's not legalistic. And in verses 18 and 19, he says, the gospel is not elitist. And in 20 to 23, he says, the gospel is not performative because the gospel brings us into real transformation, internal transformation, not just external actions. And Paul is writing because the church in Colossae is in danger of losing sight of the true source of her security, of her assurance, of her belonging, of her transformation, which is the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. So let's turn now to Colossians 2, chapter, or, uh, chapter 2, verse 16. I encourage you to, to go there in your Bibles, because we're just going to be going verse by verse 
through these verses. Let's begin. The gospel is not legalistic because the gospel provides true security. So verse 16, Paul says, Therefore, and he's referring back to the preceding argument, that all of us, all of us were dead in our trespasses and sins, but we have been made alive with Jesus in his resurrection. So Paul is saying, because of that, because that's true, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one shame you. Let no one say that you're excluded because of questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, new moon, or a Sabbath. So what is, what is Paul referring to here? And what do these have to do with what I'm calling purity? Remember I said in the ancient world, religion is, is bound up with the idea of purity. How do we make ourselves acceptable to God, able to approach his holy presence? And the Jews were no different in this regard, except for this one thing, that they believed that they weren't just playing guesswork here, that God, in his grace, actually told them, here's how you can come before me. Here's what you can do so that I can live amongst you. I know that you're unholy. I know that about you. Here are a set of laws so that I can live and dwell with you. And so they were given, you know, food laws, what to eat and not eat. And these were kind of a very public sign. If you were having dinner with people, it would become immediately recognizable that the Jews are the people of God, the people belonging to Yahweh because of what they chose to eat or not eat, in contrast to the others. That separation. And he refers to festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths. And when those three are put together in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Old Testament, when those three are put together... What's often in the background there is the sacrificial system, this means by which an unholy people would dwell with a holy God. And so, of course, here, we also should just recognize that, that in this sense, Christianity is not new. It's the fulfillment of God's promises to his people, to the Jews, to the Hebrews. But so if God has commanded all of these things... If he's commanded that the Jews do all these things, then what's the problem? Why is Paul saying you don't have to do them anymore? And he explains it in verse 17, that these purity laws, these laws are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance, the body, the thing that casts the shadow belongs to Christ. That all of these laws with their, their descriptions of, of pure and impure and clean and unclean and holy and, and unholy spaces, all of these were pointing to the purity that Jesus offers because of his death and resurrection. That's what it was all about. They're all pointing forward to that. All of this whole sacrificial system is pointing forward to Christ's once-for-all sacrifice on the cross. And so Paul isn't saying that these laws are wrong. And he's not saying that they're unimportant. I mean, these are still part of our scriptures. They are still shadows, things that point us to what Christ gives us. Okay, so they're not wrong, they're not unimportant, but they're no longer applicable for the Christian. They are no longer the means by which we purify ourselves. Because in Christ, you have been made pure. You've been made acceptable. You've been forgiven. You've been given access to the Holy of Holies, who is not, is not anymore a, a temple or a tabernacle, but it's a person. In Colossians 1, chapter 19, or 
chapter 1, verse 19. Jesus is the temple. He is the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells, and you have access to him by grace through faith. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. The record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands has been canceled. It has been nailed to the cross. The sacrifice to end all sacrifices has been made. Which means that these laws, the sacrificial system, all of these are pointing to what you have through your immersion, your baptism into the person of Jesus, the only one who is ever truly pure. Praise the Lord. And so Paul says, for the person who clings to what they do, to laws and practices, as if they were the source of purity, that person is clinging to a false promise. If you are clinging to the things that you do, thinking that they are what make you pure, acceptable, or righteous, or good, then you are clinging to a false promise of security. We are not acceptable in God's sight because of what we do. We are acceptable because of what Jesus has done for us. And of course, this creates a tension in our lives because God does care about what we do. He cares very much about what we do. Chapter 3 is going to have a whole long list of Paul telling the Colossians, here's what you should do. And so how do we hold these two intentions, grace on the one hand and his commands on the other? And I think the way we hold those intention is by the order, that grace always comes first, that our security in God's sight is always because of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. And what we do comes from that security. It comes out of that place. So that what we do, we're not doing it out of compulsion, trying to please an angry God, but we're doing it out of freedom and joy. We trade legalism for joy, that we get to freely obey the God who has set us free from sin. Not through our own efforts, but through grace. So let's move now to, to verses 18 and 19. The gospel is not elitist, because the gospel promises true community, true belonging. So what was the purpose of these purity laws? It was to preserve access to God's presence. And it seems that the Colossians have this philosophy. They've started to think that by their legalism, by their strict obedience to Jewish law, and by adding on to that a, a degree of kind of heightened spirituality, practices of asceticism, maybe like radical or extreme fasting, that by, by being kind of extra special Christians, or that they can have extra special access to God in the heavenly places. They can be part of this elite group within the church. And Paul is saying, no, that's not how the church works. There is no elite group in the church. Verse 18, Paul says to the Colossians, let no one disqualify you. Let no one say that you're disqualified, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. And that, that probably means like worshiping with the angels, you know, this, this idea that they had that, you know, in this lofty spiritual state, you can ascend to the heavens and worship there and have these special visions. That's probably what Paul's talking about. He could also be talking about like worshiping the angels themselves, which would be idolatry. But the point is that the problem for Paul isn't the visions. He's not upset about the visions themselves, but he's upset 
that these visions, these private spiritual experiences, are only serving to inflate the pride and the ego of these people, so much so that they disqualify others because they haven't ascended to that heightened spiritual state. He says that, that because of these visions, these folks are becoming puffed up without reason by their sensuous minds. Just love to be part of this exclusive club. We know that Paul is not against a private spiritual experience. In other letters, he talks about his own spiritual experiences. And for, for us, those can be, you know, something that God really manifests himself to us, really reveals himself to us and enables us to bless others. But what Paul is against, too, is the exclusivity of the thinking, I'm better than the others who don't have these. And notice what he says elitism does in verse 19. Elitism doesn't hold fast to the head. It becomes so caught up in the spiritual experience that it forgets Jesus. It forgets the one in the heavenly places who has given us access. It forgets this, this richness that all of us have been qualified to share, this inheritance that we've been qualified to share. And Paul also says that if you lose connection to the head, then you'll also lose connection to the body who nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. And so why does he talk about the body? Because there is something inherently isolating about elitism. To say, I'm part of this special class of people who really gets it right, you've just shrunk your community. And then that community will have its own demands. And so, you know, you say, well, I'm going to ascend even higher within that. And, and your community gets smaller and smaller and smaller until it's only you who's left pleasing in God's sight. Right? Elitism shrinks your community. But the grace of Jesus opens wide the opportunity for belonging. A community that doesn't grow because all these individual members are having their own private spiritual experiences, but a, a community that grows together, is knit together, and grows with a growth that is from God. And so how can we, how can we apply this to, to our situation, even to our church today? I think, you know, if, if outsiders are looking at the church, you know, one of the things that really sticks out to them are our teachings around sexuality and our, our firm commitment that, that sexual intimacy is reserved for marriage between one man and one woman for life. It really stands out into our culture. That seems ascetic. That seems like extreme and way too much. And, and as believers, we don't think that. We don't think that this is ascetic, reserved for just some extra holy people. We think this is a command for all of us, that it's even good news. It's the gospel that teaches us how to love one another, how to love our neighbors, how to love ourselves and our own bodies. So none of that is the problem. But here's where sin can creep in. Here's where sin creeps in. Sin can creep in and, and give people the idea in the church that there are two kinds of people. There are two classes of people. And on the one hand, there are the people who got this teaching right in their lives, who haven't sinned, in these certain significant ways. There are the people who got it right, and then there are the people who got it wrong, who we're glad, we're, we're glad they're here, but they're kind of damaged goods, right? They've kind of missed out on this spiritual state that they otherwise could have had. 
if they hadn't made the, the choices and decisions that they did. That idea can get in there, and that idea is not true. That is not the dividing line by which God divides his church, the people who got it right and the people who didn't. But there is a dividing line. There are two classes of people. And so on the one hand, you have over here everyone who was born dead in their trespasses and sins. And on the other hand, you have the one man who wasn't. You have the one man who was ever truly alive in and of himself who has the power to take all of these people and make them alive as well. That is the only dividing line that matters. Amen? Amen. That is the only dividing line that matters. And so if we were to pull this room right now, right, and we were to say, who doesn't need healing? Who doesn't need wholeness in the area of sexuality? There is not one person in this room who could raise their hand and say, I don't need that. All of us are broken. All of us are in need of healing. The ones who have sinned greatly and the ones who haven't sinned greatly, but all of us are born dead in our trespasses and sins. And that applies to our sexuality as much as to every other aspect of our lives. We all stand in need of God's grace. All of us. And this is a great word of hope. This is a great word of hope because it means for the people over here, you don't have to work really hard to maintain your purity, your goodness, your, your holiness out of a fear that you're going to end up like one of them. You have the freedom over here to say, I am one of them. I need God's grace. And to pursue wholeness from a place of freedom and acceptableness and forgiveness. You are freed from having to measure up to this standard. Freed to, pers to pursue real healing. And for the people over here who just carry this weight of shame, you know, the, the people who, at, at all of the worst times when you really want to connect with the Lord and all you can think about are the mistakes you've made. All you can think about are the temptations that, that you suffer with. For those people, they, they have the freedom to know that you are accepted that you are forgiven, that purity, the very thing you long for, you already have. Christ has made you pure. So walk in that. Walk in a, in a matter uh, uh, worthy of the Lord, as it says in Colossians 1, with all wisdom and understanding, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved Son. God does not look at you the way you look at yourself. You are not the sum of your failures and mistakes, but you are the sum of God's concrete love for you displayed on the cross. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So let's turn now to, to verses 20 to 23. The gospel is not performative. Verse 20, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, 
And that phrase is really interesting, elemental spirits of the world. Paul uses it here in Colossians and, and also in Galatians. And what he means is the normal way of doing business with God. You know, this, this understanding throughout the ancient world that there are supernatural powers, that there are gods that supervise every region of the earth, and your job as a human being is to not make them upset and to live in harmony with them. And Paul's saying you've died to all of that. You've died to all of that. So why, as if you were still alive in that world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. You know, again, these, these purity laws referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings, human understandings of how to be acceptable before God. And this is a truly radical idea. Paul is saying the normal way of doing business with God, we're done with that. You don't have to make yourself pure. Jesus has made you pure. And so we have this fundamentally different way of interacting with the world, interacting with God. We are acceptable not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done for us. And so here's the clincher, verse 23. He says, these practices, they have an appearance of wisdom. They look right to the people around you. They look effective, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So at the end of the day, what's the problem with these purity laws? Is that they don't work. They're ineffective. They don't make you pure. They just might make you look pure and acceptable, but they don't change what's happening inside. They don't change what's happening as God views you. By human standards, they can make you look different, but they can't change what's inside. They can't take what is earthly and dead and make it heavenly and alive. And so I think this idea of, of performative purity is actually really important for us to think about in our day in a social media age, in an age where, I know it's like a cliche, but a polarized age that we live in. Because all of us live with, with these voices speaking into our lives, you know, from a political, social left or right, speaking in and telling us how to think and how to speak about different issues and which news sources you should trust and which you should stay away from and not mention at the Thanksgiving dinner table which people to associate with and which to scorn. And it's okay to have convictions about all of those things. It's okay to have firm convictions about all of those things. But here's where sin creeps in, that we start performing our righteousness so that we sound like and look like and talk like a certain tribe that gives us acceptability. You know, so, so you might be listening to this sermon. You might not even believe in God. You might say, you know, I'm just not that concerned with being acceptable before God. I don't even think he's there. In fact, I don't even know why I'm here right now, but it's marginally entertaining, right? You might be sitting there thinking that. But, but you are likely not numb to the influence of these voices on either side telling you to perform, telling you to think a certain way, not because... It's grounded in true love and compassion, but because they want you to sound like them. This is something for us to pay attention to. It's good to have convictions, but we need to look at ourselves and say, am I being transformed? 
Am I becoming a person of love, peaceableness, and forgiveness? Am I truly growing in wisdom and discernment, or am I just learning how to preach to the choir? There's a difference between those things, and the gospel is not performative. The gospel seeks real transformation, where you would really start to look like Jesus, who stands above this whole political, social spectrum, stands in judgment of all of it, and calls you to himself. Again, hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that it's bad to, to find yourself on either side of the political spectrum. It's, in fact, it's good to have convictions. I'm saying there's a difference between performative actions and real transformation. So how do we do this? How do we become people who are rooted in the promises of Jesus without becoming legalistic or elitist or performative? Because God does care about the things we do. And I think the answer we're going to get to in the next couple weeks as we look at chapter 3, but I'll give us a sneak peek this morning. Chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, okay, putting aside the legalism, elitism, performance, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are, are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Jesus is our one true source of assurance and security that we are forgiven, acceptable, pure in God's sight. He is our one true source of belonging in the company of all of the sinners here who are being made whole, who are being made holy, sanctified. And he is our one true source of transformation. We're not by our own efforts, but by his grace working in us and with us, we can become the likeness of God's own Son. And indeed, we will be. We will share in His glory to the praise of the Father. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.